Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. It's budget-setting season again for local authorities in Britain. The Tories and central government have succeeded in making local councils do their dirty work and implement savage austerity for a decade. In fact, so successful was this strategy that the lack of any practical distinction between Labour and Conservative at a local level was a significant factor in Jeremy Corbyn's general election defeat in December. From the perspective of many in working class communities, nothing ever seems to change. So why bother voting for Labour? But the general election is behind us for now. Prime Minister Boris Johnson claims austerity is over, but local government gives the lie to that. Council jobs and services are utterly threadbare. And there is major economic uncertainty ahead. So councillors have a choice not to make more cuts. Either they can carry on acting as managers of austerity, as tame local representatives of Tory central government, or they can set no-cuts budgets and demand the stolen millions back from Westminster as fighting representatives of local workers and residents. This could even paralyse and eventually overturn Johnson's unstable Tory government. The Socialist Party calls on Labour councils to fight and for Labour leadership candidates to commit to pushing for such a fight. It's the same road taken successfully by the famous Socialist Liverpool Council in the 1980s. Now is the time to take the Liverpool road once more. This is a rerun of episode 16 from January 2019. The situation has changed, but councils still have the power to defy Tory cuts and the need for councils to fight remains. So this episode of Socialism asks, are no-cuts council budgets possible? Okay, I'm here today with Clive Heemskirk, who is a member of the Socialist Party's Executive Committee, who we've spoken to on the podcast before. Hi, Clive. Uh-huh. And today we're going to be talking about the issue of uh, council cuts and what local councils could do, particularly the idea of no-cuts budgets that the Socialist Party has raised. Um, and this is an issue that the Socialist Party uh, is kind of known for putting a lot of emphasis on, isn't it, on the issue of cuts being made in local government and this idea of no cuts budget so why do we think it matters so much well firstly you know, the first point to make really is that councils are responsible for nearly one quarter of all public spending so that the council budget setting meetings that would t- take place in the next few weeks they will directly affect the level of services for adults and, and children's social care housing education Recycling and waste collection, Shore Start children's centres, local welfare schemes, public health spending, funding for women's refugees, libraries, youth centres, public transport, museums, parks, leisure facilities, highway maintenance, street lighting, pest control, trading standards, um, you know, uh, fire services, planning, regeneration. You know, it's a bit like the, the scene in Monty Python's Life of Brian when you know, what have the Romans ever done for us? And then they have a you know, a, a debate about it and, and list all those. And that's, you know, so even just at that level alone, local councils are, um, they are the local state. Um, and by the way, that doesn't uh, account for the indirect relationship they have with other public services. You take the NHS, for example, the problem of so-called bed blocking, you know, which is a bad phrase, but you know, the idea that people who are well enough to be discharged 
but they can't be discharged because there's lack of support at home, that's directly linked to the crisis, the underfunding of adult social care, or even things like universal credit. I mean, that's you apply for universal credit via the DWP. But in 2013, councils were given responsibility from the DWP for social fund emergency payments. Um, and some of them have set up schemes uh, you know, um, to provide money for you know, stepping in during the gap between applying for universal credits and the first payments. Now, that's totally inadequate what they've done, but it does show the potential role that councils could play in resisting austerity. They are the local state which the working class movement has always tried to utilise for its own purposes. Just as an aside, the first ever real Labour representatives, political representatives in Britain, or, or you know, as political representatives of the Labour movement, were actually candidates put up by local trades councils for election to the schools boards that were set up by the 1870 Education Act. In other words, local government has always been an arena for the class struggle. And today there are 125 Labour-controlled councils across Britain, and potentially they could be a powerful counter-power to the Tory government and help bring down its demise. And in a sense, this um, idea that we raise uh, has become more important since the election of Jeremy Corbyn as Labour leader, hasn't it? Um, And these budgets that are just about to be set by local councils are actually the fourth round of council budgets since, uh, since he has become leader. So what's been his approach, the approach of uh, John McDonnell and the leaders of Momentum, for example, the, the Corbyn supporting group, to the issue of cuts that are being implemented, particularly in Labour-run councils? Um, the problem has been is that Labour councillors have always been a stronghold, or have been a stronghold of the supporters of Tony Blair and the Labour right wing, the Blairites, in other words, who are committed to a defence of capitalism, they see the market economy as the only way to organise society in their view. And they haven't been prepared, as you'd expect, to resist the demands from the Tories for cuts, but also actually for the privatisation of public services, the PFI deals, outsourcing to private contractors and so on. And there are over 7,000 Labour councillors in Britain. And just to give an example, only 400 came out in support of Jeremy Corbyn when he stood for leader first of the leader in the summer of 2015, probably has less support amongst Labour councillors than he had in the Parliamentary Labour Party at that point. Um, and, you know, Polly Toynbee was very concerned at that stage, you know, for one, about the pressure that those Labour councillors would come under, you know, the right when Labour councillors would be under pressure. As she said, they'd be encouraged by Corbyn, or, or there'd be moves locally by um, encouraged by Corbyn to set illegal budgets, as in Liverpool and Claycross. So it's it was it was seen as a as a stronghold of the Blairites, which should have been taken on by uh, Jeremy Corbyn and his um, supporters. Now, I'll come on, you know, perhaps we'll discuss Polly Tornby's point about illegal budgets later on. But the point to make here is that, unfortunately, in the same way as Jeremy Corbyn hasn't taken on the Blairite MPs, the majority of the Parliamentary Labour Party is still bitterly hostile to Jeremy Corbyn and his uh, um, anti-austerity position, it's also a fact that the right wing have been left largely unchallenged in their position in local governments, even to the extent, actually, at the 2016 Labour Party conference, there was a constitutional amendment that was passed. This is under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. He didn't speak out against it, which made it an automatic disciplinary offence for Labour councillors, 
quotes, not to support a legal budget proposed by the council administration. In other words, it gave greater powers to the council leadership of Labour groups to clamp down on any rebel councillors. And then also early on in the leadership, um, again, unfortunately, Jeremy and, and John McDonnell looking really to conciliate with the right wing rather than take them on. Jeremy and John were pressurised into sending out a circular letter to local um, uh, council Labour group leaders and that, you know, saying that Labour councils must set, quote, balanced budgets under the, the Local Government Act of 1992. And then later on, and if they don't set a budget, a council officer will do it for them. There is no choice for them anymore, you know, the letter said. And unfortunately, that's been used by right-wing Labour councillors up and down the country to justify continuing with the austerity policies of cuts, privatisation and so on. And obviously we think that that's been a mistake, that approach. So what should their approach have been? Well, first of all, I'll just make a point about um, not setting the budget, which was in the John McDonnell, Jeremy Corbyn letter. That's actually a red herring because nobody suggested not Mm. setting budgets. Although it was a tactic that was adopted in the 1980s by, amongst others, John McDonnell, when he was um, a councillor on the Greater London Council, the GLC. Now, we don't advocate such an approach. We didn't advocate it then, and we don't advocate it now. At that time, in the 19, in those debates in the 80s, we said it was better for councils to set what was termed a deficit budget, which means agreeing to spend what is needed, but not raising the rates, which was the equivalent of the council tax at the time, above the cap that was sent, set by central governments, and instead demanding that the governments reverse their cuts to local um, council funding and made up the deficits. And that showed, we thought, in concrete figures, how much the government under Margaret Thatcher was stealing from local people. Um, There was less room for confusion on what was at stake and who was responsible than there would have been if if the council just not set a budget at all or not not set a rate at all. And also it bought some time um, for the councils if they took that road because a rate would be set and money would be coming into the council and it, it, it allowed the time to build up the campaign. So as I say, the point about um, not setting the budget in the John McDonnell, Jeremy Corbyn letter is a red herring, but they are right when they say that local government legislation now says um, that councils must set a balanced budget. Um, they can't set a deficit budget in the sense that if a deficit budget is passed, which you know, it can't be in that sense, um, in other words, if planned expenditure doesn't uh, balance with projected income, council tax bills can't be sent out by council staff and council staff can't spend money. Um, but then the issue is, well, what is a balanced budget? Um, a council can balance its budgets by using its reserves and by borrowing, both of which councils are legally able, illegally able to do. Now, that wouldn't avoid a confrontation with the government because council borrowing ends up on the national public borrowing figures. So it's, you know, it's part of the, becomes in effect, then becomes part of the, the national deficit. But the point I'm making is that um, it shows the potential role that Labour councils could play in resisting austerity. There are 125 Labour-led councils in Britain, excluding bodies like the Great London Authority or the Far Authorities that Labour controls and so on. They control budgets with a combined total of about £80 billion, which means they're bigger than some countries. In fact, you know, Labour council land, if you want to call it that, has a combined spending power greater than the GDP of nine EU countries and the national state budgets of 16 
So, and they have usable reserves of 14 billion at the present time. So the potential is there to resist. And really, John McDonnell could help it along enormously by pledging that when he became chan- when he becomes Chancellor, he will replenish any reserves that councils use or underwrite any borrowing that they make now to avoid making cuts now. And that, that's the type of policy that you know, could actually transform the situation, both in terms of local government, but also open up a new front against the May government. So I think there are um, two kind of criticisms of this strategy that are made that uh, it would be good if you could respond to. Mm-hmm. One is um, people claiming that by making these points about Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell not taking this approach and that being mistaken, that we're undermining uh, right. their their kind of left leadership of Labour. And related to that, uh, in a way, um, that we should be concentrating our fire on the Tories and what they're doing nationally and on the the national cuts to the NHS and so on. Although I think that the point she made at the start about how many public services councils uh, are responsible for answer are a big part of the answer to that. Well, first of all, if John McDonnell was to make a pledge to that he would replenish, when he comes to power, he would replenish any reserves that a council has used um, to avoid making cuts now or underwrite any borrowing that they had made to you know, to avoid cuts, that would actually have the potential to split the Tory party mm. because you know um, obviously he would he wouldn't be making that pledge just just for labor controlled councils. It means that Tory councillors and Tory councillors have also faced the consequences of cuts in in local in central government funding and local councils uh, you know it's, it's been cut you know, the central government fund has been cut by about sixteen billion since 2010 and Tory controlled councils have been affected as well and that would um, you know not, and even Tory councils don't you know oppose a free lunch or some of them do ideologically but generally speaking you know it would it would cause splits even there so in, in that sense it would undermine completely the you know the Tory uh, government so it's not undermining Corbyn it's undermining the Tories but secondly while Working class people do distinguish between the actions of their local Labour councillors and Jeremy Corbyn's anti-austerity message, and, you know, and that's clear, I think. There is a greater fluidity in political attachments in this period, in this era, really, um, compared, for example, to the post-war period, which was you know, obviously underwritten by the boom. And the loyalty, in particular, working class people's loyalty to Labour Party was underwritten by the fact that it, it, you know, the Labour government had created real gains. The NHS, mass council house building, comprehensive education, the welfare states. You know, you could see it. That's what you know, that was identified with the Labour Party. That isn't that that's lost. That's that's not here in this in this current uh, generation. And Jeremy Corbyn has been leader of the Labour Party for three and a half years. And the fact is, the lived experience of many people living under local Labour uh, councils. Is that they're carrying out Tory cuts, or they're carrying out cuts, uh, services are running down, you know, there's ina- inadequate services and so on. And unfortunately, I think that's far more undermining of Labour or of Jeremy Corbyn than fighting back and, uh, and being prepared to to fight back. And lastly, I think you know, it, and this is an important point really for you know, trade unionists, for socialists, anti-austerity activists to take on board. It does put a question mark over how a, a Corbyn-led government would respond to the pressures from the defenders of capitalism um, you know, that he would face in the IMF, the CBI, the Bank of England and so on, um, telling him that he can't reverse cuts in you know, to public spending, he can't carry through nationalisation of the railways, he can't um, you know, uh, end the PFI contracts and so on. You know, um, if he's in power, 
it, it, it raises a question mark. If you can't defy, can't take on Blairite defenders of capitalism in their local town hall, what's he going to say when the IMF come knocking on the door? So it's an issue that we have to take on board, you know, partly in order to build up our forces, the forces of you know, the trade unions, working class movement, socialists, to prepare the Labour movement to resist the pressures that the Corbyn-led government would face. So then, in terms of, uh, people might ask, has this been done? Is it possible? Mm -hmm. Um, What are the examples we give? We often refer to the example of uh, Liverpool in the 1980s. Can you kind of give us an overview of what happened there? Well, actually, um, probably Liverpool should be the subject of a separate podcast at some point, I think, because it was an experience that was very rich in lessons. Really, um, if you think about it, here we had the Socialist Party, then we were known as the militant tendency within the Labour Party, in effect, in the political leadership, in power, holding power, in the seventh or eighth biggest city in in Britain. From the victory um, of the Labour councillors in May 1983 council elections, when they defeated the Liberal Tory coalition in Liverpool, until 1987 for that four-year period. Um, We worked with others, absolutely. There were, in fact, only ever um, 11 members of Militant uh, out of the heroic 47 Liverpool Labour councillors who defied uh, Thatcher. Um, And and the struggle wasn't just in the council chamber. In fact, on the contrary, really. I think you have to say that it was the mass campaign was the key to the success in Liverpool, even from before the victory of the council. You know, when there was, for example, the occupation of Croxeth Comprehensive School in 1982. There was a one-day city-wide strike against privatisation even before the Labour group won a majority on the council in May 1983. And then you had, you know, again, part of the mass campaign, the one-day strike in support of the council's deficit budget proposal in March 1984, with 50,000 people marching to the town hall in support of them setting the deficit budget. Now, that sounds incredible. When you know, going back to your first question, why why is local councils, local government important? Well, when fifty thousand people are prepared to march, yeah. um, you know, uh, uh, um, in support, that shows how it could be important. And then you had even things like the mass meetings at the district Labour Party. It was a mass body with delegates, uh, you know, from you know, literally from you know, workplaces, from uh, uh, local Labour parties, from the Labour Party women's sections, the youth section, but the trade unions at the core of it. And that body debated and decided on all poli- on all the key council tactics and therefore instructed the, the Labour group. So the Labour group was accountable to the District Labour Party. And you know, the concrete record is there in terms of you know, 5,000 new homes that were built during that period of four years, more than the number of council homes built by all other Labour councils at that time. There were more apprentices um, started in Liverpool in the four years than had been started in the previous 40 years in the city. There were six new nursery schools built. There was new sports centres built. Um, you know, and, um, and in the first year of the struggle, in 1984, um, the council actually forced Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady, to give an extra £60 million to the city to help fund uh, um, you know, its, its budget to transform the city. Okay, um, but then in terms of where that struggle mm-hmm. ended up, uh, I think some people, and to be concrete about it, I think some people who um, start from the point of view of no cuts budgets not being possible, of wanting to argue against the strategy mm. that we're putting forward, but also some people who have genuine concerns mm. about uh, councils, the idea that councils should be responsible. Um, 
would point out that in the end, the the Liverpool councillors were defeated, they were removed from office and they were surcharged for that stand that they took. Uh, Why wouldn't the same happen again if councillors attempted the same kind of strategy now? Well, um, again, that's interesting that the, first of all, the victory over Margaret Thatcher in 1984, which, as I said, won the city an extra £60 million in funding, did give impetus to the campaign for other councils to defy the Tories, so that in 1985, Liverpool was joined by 21 other councils, Labour councils, um, you know, who, who wanted to take on the Tory government. Now, against our advice, and we lost the vote, but we wanted to keep the unity of the 21 councils, they adopted the no-rate, don't-set-a-budget tactic, which I referred to earlier, mm-hmm. and that did include, as I say, John McDonald, I think was the finance chief of the GLC, which at that point was under you know, the leadership of Ken Livingston. And by the way, other council leaders involved in that joint campaign were David Blunkett, leader of Sheffield Council, Margaret Hodge was leader of Islington Council at that time, Graham Stringer, who's still a backbench Labour MP, was leader of Manchester Council, and so on. So, as I say, there's 21 councils that are involved on that strategy of not setting the budget, or not setting the rates. But with the exception of Lambeth Council, whose leader was Ted Knight at that, at that point, they all backed down so that eventually, in June, Liverpool passed a, a budget. It did, it did set a budget. This time, another. it was another deficit budget and, and got set for a further confrontation with the Tories. But this time, as opposed to 1984, it was against the background of a government that defeated the miners. The miners went back to work in in March 85 because of the role of the TUC leaders. That's that's absolutely clear. And you know they they had uh, and, the, and the government had the open backing of Neil Kinnock um, as leader of the Labour Party. You know, we remember his famous conference speech denouncing uh, Liverpool Council in 1985. Um, actually, so I remember it. Put, put your, <laughs> <laughs> I know you of it. <laughs> you know of it exactly. Um, and uh, you know, so uh, um, Kinnock joined in the attack. They set up an inquiry into the District Labour Party in particular and began the expulsions of militant supporters. So it's true. Eventually, the councillors were surcharged. They went through legal appeals up to the House of Lords, but finally they were removed from office. It's true. They were surcharged and, de- and then debarred from office in March 1987, although that is four years after the victory that they won in 1983. But it is important saying here at this point, because there is this mythology that's built up around it, the councillors were not surcharged for setting a deficit budget. And that's that's the mythology that's put around, because they set a deficit budget both in 1984 and in 1985, but ironically, they were surcharged because they delayed setting the budget in 1985 until June in order to keep the United Front going with Ken Livingstone, Margaret Hodge, David Blunkett and so on. Um, and and that was the, the breach of the law. They didn't, in effect, collect in the money for that gap when they hadn't set a budget. That was the, that was the issue that um, they breached the law on. Um, uh, 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 and, you know, and they were surcharged for. Now, how does that relate to today? As I said earlier, nobody, you know, we didn't argue for that in the 1980s and we're not arguing for it now. And nobody, as far as I'm aware, is arguing that councils shouldn't set a budget, except perhaps in John McDonald's you know, letter, um, or in fact that um, you know, to set a deficit budget. Because as I explained, because of local government legislation that's been introduced since the 1980s uh, struggles, it means that council tax bills couldn't be issued 
if a deficit budget was set and council staff couldn't authorise expenditure. So, you know, the strategy today is, you know, that we argue for is that councils should set no cuts budgets balanced by using reserves and borrowing, both of which councils are legally able to do. But it's not the case that there would be no obstacles in the way of this strategy, is it? No. <laughs> despite um, the... Yeah, despite those points you just made. Um, so what obstacles would a council face in trying to pass a no-cuts budget today? Well, councils do have powers to borrow. Um, and there's, there's two types of borrowing they can do, either with government permission or backed by government grants, and that's known as supported borrowing, or through what is known as prudential borrowing. Um, another term for that is unsupported borrowing which is financed in terms of meeting the interest payments and repayments over 20 years, 25 years or whatever, purely from the council's own resources. So it's not backed, underwritten by government uh, grants or permission. Now, when a council... uh, But they can do that. They can borrow in that way. Prudential borrowing is is perfectly legal. Now, when a council borrows... And by the way, councils across Britain last year borrowed over £6 billion. um, Sorry, not last year, 2016. I've got the figures for the... The, you know, the last financial year. Um, but when a council borrows, they have to, um, it has to legally identify how the interest and repayments will be financed, although legally only for the first, only for the first year, because each budget is set each year. So, uh, you know, it's not a thing you'd advise necessarily, but you know, that, but that's their legal requirement to show how the bug, how the um, repayments and interest will be, you know, be paid off in the first period of the loan. Um, and the borrowing, and that borrowing can be financed by using council reserves. As I said earlier, Labour councils have £14 billion of usable reserves. They could borrow with that enormous sums, actually. Um, and council reserves, by the way, are things which are um, your money the council's put aside, it's held in the council accounts um, f- for possible future expenditure, you know, so-called rainy days mm. funds. But, and often, by the way, you know, I know from experience in Lewisham, we had two councillors. It was a rain, part of it was flood, future flood defence funds. So, you know, she was for rainy days. Um, it, you know, and, um, uh, uh, um, but those reserves can be drawn on. You know, they, you know, there's unusable reserves, which are legally committed to things like pension repayments, but there are usable reserves, and that's the figure of 14 billion uh, usable reserves. Uh, you know, you know, was usable reserves, which we gave earlier. Now, all council budgets. Um, have to be um, have to be scrutinised by the council's chief financial officer, it's a legal um, of, you know, a senior legal um, officer um, in a council, and they make a legal notice, what's known as a section twenty six notice, on whether the budget is viable in their opinion. And as I mentioned earlier, we had two Socialist Party councillors in Lewisham, uh, you know, um, in you know until two thousand and ten. And um, uh, uh, and we produced an alternative budget proposing potential borrowing funded by the use of reserves. And the chief financial officer produced a report. She couldn't say it was illegal, but she strongly advised that it would cause problems for future years' budgets. It wasn't an advisable use of borrowing powers. And, you know, and it kept on hammering home. It wasn't sustainable in the long term and so on. And that would be the first um, obstacle, the... Um, Chief Financial Officer issuing their Section 26 notice on the you know, on a no cuts budget, but let's be clear about this: the legislation does say, and it's crystal, it's absolutely clear. "Quote: Councillors have a duty to determine whether they agree with the Chief Financial Officer's statutory report." 
um, you know, issued under 26, Section 26 of the 2003 Local Government Act. If you think about it, that also means that councils have a duty um, to determine whether, whether they disagree mm. with the Chief Financial Officer's reports. And that's what we're saying that Labour councils should be doing. They should be disagreeing with those, um, you know, that advice and setting no-cuts budgets. What could happen then? Well, there are lots of details that um, we could explore. Perhaps we should have another podcast, you know, on you know, everything you want to know about local government finance, but we're afraid to ask at some point. We'll think about Perhaps it. Perhaps not. <laughs> okay. Um, but broadly, uh, the, the, the point in, in Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonald's letter was right. Uh, this is for after a no-cuts budget has been passed. So think that through. A no-cuts budget has been passed in the council chamber. This course of defiance has been set. At that point... There could be, as they say, and this is the three points they raised, complaints against councils under the Code of Conduct, a judicial review of the council, or ultimately government intervention by the Secretary of State. So those are the three um, future obstacles. Okay, and what could be done to overcome those? Well, let's, let's go through them. Firstly, complaints against councils under the Code of Conduct, which is a thing which every councillor has to sign once they're elected, um, a bit like MPs have to swear loyalty to the Queen and the heirs. You know, how, you know, how Conway's did, Dave Nellis, Terry Fields and Pat Wall, you know, to swear loyalty to the royal, you know, to preserve the personage of the royal family and so on. Um, you know, so it is a piece of paper in that sense. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, you have to, you know, um, it does have a legal weight because if you breach it, then you know, there are consequences. But again, let's not exaggerate these. Before 2011... If you breach the code of conduct, um, it was you, you, you risk being referred to a national standards board, um, and that could lead to a councillor being disqualified from office for a maximum of five years. Not fines, not surcharges. As, um, surcharge has been abolished in the 2000 Local Government Act, unless it's for corrupt practices. Um, you know, uh, so not surcharged, but disqualified from office. And actually, that's what faced Ken Livingston in 2005 when he was the independent mayor of London. And he made that you know, he made that comment to an Evening Standard journalist, you're just like a concentration camp guard and so on. And he was brought before the Standards Board and he risked the possibility of being disqualified from office. But the Standards Board was abolished by the Condemns, the Conservative Demo Liberal Democrat Coalition, in, in the Localism Act in order to save money. So, you know, and by the way, why wouldn't they do that? The Localism Act has lots of things like that because Labour was safe under New Labour, under Tony Blair. Labour councils weren't defying the government, so why not give them you know, the, the full responsibility for the acts at the local, at local level? Um, but if so they abolish the Standards Board, and now a complaint has, it has to be considered by the council itself, quote, in any way the authority sees fit. That's what the legislation says. Which, if you think about it, 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 is nothing really, because if the Labour Council was committed to resisting the cuts, it's not going to disqualify itself, really, is it? Generally speaking, uh, it's a really the code of conduct threat which John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn talk about. That mechanism is for individual cases of uh, misconduct, not for collective defiance. It's a non-issue, bluntly, if, if that's raised. What about a judicial review? That's the yeah, that's the second one. Well, again. In their quest for um, savings, the, con the, the, the condemns abolished the Audit Commission, which was the body that previously appointed district auditors who had the power to seek a judicial review of particular items in the council budget. 
Um, now councils appoint their own auditors, um, and there's only been one inter public interest report issued against a council because they want to keep their clients, you know, the, the big audit companies. And by the way, that, that was just quite recently over Birmingham Council and their um, um, projections over the, the costs of the, two, the 2022 Commonwealth Games in, in the city. So there's been one public interest report that's been issued against council. So uh, there isn't a lot of enthusiasm by accountants, accountants, accounts companies to lose their clients. And by the way, there is this um, uh, blog called Room 151, which is re reference to the local section 151 of the local government acts for local government enthusiasts <laughs> could be no less than that um, and there's been articles on it that, that um you know saying that you know section 114 wielding chief financial chief financial officers really escape unscathed when they come into conflict with their you know with their um, you know with their council leadership or with the council and that's the same point about the third point which uh, jeremy corbyn and john mcdonald raised of commissioners um, where the government can appoint um, commissioners, but after an investigatory process of a number of months, at least as a, as a bare minimum, often a lot more. And that does, which obviously creates time to build a campaign after the no cuts budget has been set, so people know what's at stake. Um, and, and they can avoid appoint commissioners after that event in investigation, and that process is exhausted, to take over particular council functions. And in this case, that would be. You know, the budget setting functions of a council which can be proven to have suffered a governance failure by the way that can be legally challenged of course by the council in that process so it's a process you know, and in the interim the council is still in power not implementing cuts mobilizing opposition and so on now as an example those powers were used in 2015 after a report found that rotherham council wasn't fit to handle child sexual exploitation cases but within Public support for commissioners to intervene in, in the Rotherham scandal is one thing. Imagining Theresa May, um, you know, the Theresa May government, having to stand up in Parliament and justify deploying commissioners, even against one council, but if it, half a dozen councils or whatever, and you know, to, you know, to take over their budgetary functions when those councils are backed by a mass campaign by the leader of the opposition, mobilising popular support in the national campaign against the cuts. That's an entirely different issue indeed. Okay, and I think that relates then to probably the answer to the last question I'd like to discuss, which is that this strategy that we put forward of no-cuts budgets, of using reserves and borrowing powers, can only be temporary, can't it? That, that eventually those things are exhausted. So what comes after that? Well, that was the key argument used, you know, for example, in Lewisham by the Chief Financial Officer when she said... Um, it, it would cause problems for future year budgets. It wasn't sustainable in the long term. You know, that, that's the issue that's raised. Or, for example, in Southampton, where the rebel councillors put a similar type of budget amendment back in 2013, um, and the Labour uh, group, Labour-led council, got QC's opinion to try and argue against it. And the, you know, the QC wrote back um, and said... At best, the proposal relies on a hope that central government would, at some indeterminate point in the future, increase funding to the council by an indeterminate amount. So, you know, pompous legal case, but but, yeah, but making in effect a political, you know, exactly that political point is not sustainable in the long term. You know, in terms of what you know, stopping cuts now, that's a different question. Um, but it is worth arguing or asking, really, in relation to that point. Thinking back 
to what is next now over 28 years ago, going back, say, to November 1990, Margaret Thatcher was still the Prime Minister, um, but she was facing the clash with Tory MPs over Europe, and she was facing mass non-payment of the poll tax, mass opposition, effective austerity measures by her government. How many council finance, chief council finance officers or eminent QCs at that point would have um, you know, decided, you know, looking at their budget plans for the following year, this was November 1990, so they'd be preparing budgets for the 1991 uh, budget-making period, how many of them would have confidently predicted that just four months later Thatcher would have been gone and local, go- local councils would have been given an extra £4.3 billion, which in today's money is £7 billion, so that the last poll tax bills that went out in March 1991 would be cut by £140 prior to its abolition in, in 1992. So, you know, who are they to say you know, that you know, a struggle cannot win, concessions cannot win resources? And that's really the real issue here. Why can't Labour councils begin a campaign that does to Theresa May and what the joint pincer movements of a crisis over Europe and the mass anger and the organised campaign against the poll tax did to Margaret Thatcher in, uh, in 1990, by the way, in which, in which, of course, the Socialist Party played a critical role in organising that mass campaign of non-payment of the poll tax. In other words, really, that's the, you know, the main point I want to get across. Why can't local government once again be an arena for class struggle and a weapon for the labour movement? Thanks very much, Clive. Thank you. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. This week we heard a rerun of Clive Heemskirk, and I'm James Ivans. If you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for, we need you. Join our campaign to build a truly effective working-class fighting force in the trade union and labour movement. Join the Socialist Party now. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers' International by visiting socialistworld.net. Help us spread the word about Socialism, the podcast, by giving us a five-star review and subscribing so you don't miss out. And don't forget to recommend us to your co-workers and friends. We want you to send us recordings from picket lines and campaigns and reports of your activity. And we want your questions, comments and ideas for future episodes. Email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk Socialism, the podcast, has no wealthy backers. We survive thanks to the financial support of ordinary, working class and young people. And we're proud of the political independence that gives us. If you like what you hear, help us take the fight to big business. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Until next time, solidarity.